Most of you don't need an introduction to Larry, but I thought there probably would be maybe a few people here that don't know him, so I wanted to give you just a little bit of background. After serving in, at Salem Mennonite Church in the light of Ohio for 11 years, Larry and Sharon moved to Columbiana for Larry to begin his pastorate here at Midway in 1990. And during the next 17 years that they spent here with us, they raised their family and faithfully served our Midway congregation. And as you've already heard, they both love music and are very gifted. And thank you, Larry, for being flexible and jumping in this morning. So they shared that love and, and their gifts with us of, for music, which um, blessed us all. In 2007, they moved to Elkhart, Indiana to minister at the Belmont Mennonite Church. And then in 2019, after 40 years of full-time ministry, they retired in Dover, Ohio, where they are uh, currently engaged in a ministry of helping care for Sharon's elderly father. So um, it, I'm going to read our scripture from Matthew. And after that, Larry will come. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life.
Thank you, Terry. And thank you, Midway, for inviting us to come and to share with you on this day as your pastor is uh, on sabbatical. You know, I really consider it a privilege to be able to come back and to share with you, especially on this occasion, just to be in fellowship with you, if nothing else, to enjoy that fellowship, whether your faces are familiar to me or unfamiliar, really makes no matter, because we are still family, God's family, sisters and brothers who have gathered together on this day to support each other in our walk with God. So I see it as a time, I was really looking forward to this, and I, because I see it as a time of rekindling friendships, you know, rebuilding uh, relationships and making new friends along the way, which is what I fully expect to do here on, on this day. At least as I think about that and, and our gathering together um, with the fellowship at Midway, at least that was what I was expecting to do in terms of just enjoying the good fellowship. In fact, what I had on my mind, at least my agenda, was, oh, this is going to be a great family reunion. And what we're going to do in this family reunion, I'm going to preach a feel-good sermon, and then we're all going to pat each other on the back and go home happy and content. But then I received my assignment <laughs> based on the theme that you're all working with and seeking justice together. And I'm looking at this scripture, which you've heard now a couple of times in this service. I'm looking at this scripture and saying, what is this? You know, images of, of sheep and goats, of righteousness and, and unrighteousness, of eternal inheritance and fire and brimstone. This isn't a feel-good sermon. This is judgment. This is a judgment scene. Feel good? I don't think so. So what do I do with this? What do I do with it? Some of you may remember the name Ken Hefner. Does anyone still remember Ken Hefner, yeah. Ken was a, a Brethren in Christ pastor who um, we had invited to come and to preach in a series of renewal services at Midway. Yeah, this must have been about 20 years ago or so. But as we were preparing for that event, Ken had made the comment to me that if anyone who is invited to come and to preach a series of revival sermons should probably consider themselves to be a hit-and-run hit preacher. And by that, he meant say what you need to say, and then get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit take over. Well, true to form, what Ken Hefner did on the very last night that he preached, and when he said the final amen to his message, he stepped off of this platform, walked back the aisle, through the lobby, and out the door before the service even ended and anyone knew what was going on, including myself. Ah. <sighs> I promise today that I'm not going to walk out on you. <laughs> but given the assignment that, that we have here today in working with this particular scripture, I am going to say that I have something to say. Um, but part of it is, are you with me in it? It's willing to take the risk to hear what needs to be said based on the scripture that's before us. So let's get started. Let's get started talking about this scripture. And in particular, let's talk first of all about the background to it. I mean, the setting in itself is stark. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to check it out for yourselves. It's Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Find it in your Bibles, your devices, whatever you need to do to find this, this particular passage. 
So this is a, such a, a stark setting as it is. This is, and, and, and the reason for it being so stark, the reason for it being really, really focused in is that this is Jesus' last teaching before he enters that path to the cross. I don't know if any of us have realized that in this particular text. This is the last word of Jesus before he follows the Via Della Rosa. So if that be the case then, then it's, it's kind of what he is saying here is, is kind of like a coach's final pep talk before the great championship game. And he, whatever he says, you better believe people are going to hear. His words are going to be emblazoned in the hearts and the minds of everyone who hears what he has to say. So how does he begin this one, this very last sermon to his disciples and anyone else who wants to hear? He begins by sketching a scene that begins, that appears to be almost out of this world, okay? He is surrounded by angels. He sits on a great throne before a great throng of nations. Nations that very literally in the Greek say that they have been herded together. You know, some of our translations have it kind of mild and say they all gathered together. No, they were herded together. All the nations of the world, that's the image that we have in, in, this, in this parable of Jesus. Nations that have been herded together in one giant-sized pen, whether they want to be there or not. Now try that on for size. Try, try to imagine what that might look like. If it, it just blows your mind to even think about it. But think about the diversity of, of, the diversity of language, uh, diversity of skin color, of culture, of rich, of poor, all gathered in this one place and all standing before the Son of Man on this appointed day of judgment. All hearing with our own ears everything that tells us what is the purpose of this cataclysmic gathering. And Jesus says, let the separating begin. Let the separating begin. What will it be? Blessed or accursed? No middle ground. Well, we as recipients of this day of judgment opportunity, we protest separation based on what? What are the criteria? How is this, this judgment measured? Because each step closer to judgment brings greater urgency to the question and confusion as well. You see, Neither the sheep nor the goats are aware of the presence of Jesus in how they are ministering in their everyday activities of life. Neither the sheep nor the goats are aware of Jesus' presence in the way that they are treating others around them, including who Jesus refers to as the least of these. Neither are aware of the presence of Jesus, perhaps each for their own reason. Consider the sheep, for instance. You've heard it in the Reader's Theater. You have heard it read. Now you know. What is Jesus' argument for this day of judgment? Well, some would say that what Jesus is, is telling us here is that we have to earn our ticket to heaven by doing good deeds for people who need them. And in fact, some would say, yeah, indeed, that's what it says. It's a works righteousness. After all, everything else that we've heard, it comes down to this. Have you done good deeds? 
And as I look at this from a cursory reading of this text, we'd say, well, yeah, it does kind of say that, except for one problem. And it's kind of a biggie, because according to the text, the sheep didn't know that they were earning their salvation by their actions. The sheep didn't know that that was part of the deal. They weren't, they weren't doing the, the, the kind of things, ministering to the least of these, for the, our own purpose of, of getting to heaven or, or whatsoever. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food? Or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you? Or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick and in prison and visited you? They had no idea that that their good deeds meant that somehow, by virtue of those good deeds, they were earning their place in God's kingdom. No. They weren't trying to earn God's favor. They weren't positioning themselves to be at the right hand of the throne of, of God. They weren't looking out for themselves or, or trying to pol basically politically maneuver the outcome. They just saw people in need, and they served them. They served them because they were already living their lives, focused on God and the needs of others, which was just a, basically a natural part of who they were and, and how they lived their lives. In fact, if they're looking at life through the lens of God, then there is no doubt, there is no, no way of, of somehow putting the gulf between loving God and loving their neighbor, just as Jesus called them to do. And in the midst of that, there was Jesus, the presence of Jesus in their midst. Well, as you, have, as, as you have heard, as Terry has said, we have been caring for Sharon's father on a regular basis since we moved back to, to Ohio, and it's almost, well, it's been two years, two years now. Sharon, of course, has gone in and spent more time doing that than I and in going into his apartment. But I go periodically with her, and, and one day, several months ago, several months ago, I went in with her to his apartment, and he had been watching on, on TV one of those 24-7 hour newscasts, um, networks, whatever. I, I don't necessarily call them newscasts. I call them opinion casts because they're a lot more opinion than they are news, okay? So he's watching. I don't even know which one he was watching because he tunes into all three, I think, sometimes to get a second or third opinion. But as he's, as he's looking at this, on that particular day, there was just all kinds of news about where, what, what the evangelical vote was going to do. It was just rather interesting in the way in which he was watching and just fascinated by that. So it was really focusing on evangelicals. It was really focusing on their strong support for the previous president. And, and of course, it was going into all about the power of the evangelicals and how the evangelicals were flexing their muscles as well. And in the midst of that whole business about the evangelical movement in the political scene, Sharon's father turns to me and asks, are you an evangelical? Now, I kind of knew where he was going with that, but then before I could answer him, he asked a second question. What is an evangelical? Now, how would you answer that question? <laughs> Talk about being put on the spot. How would you answer that? How would you answer either of those questions? Well, my response was, or I basically had one response. I said, you know, with all the political intrigue and the calculating, 
of the, of the evangelical vote. There is a way to authentically define evangelical, but you won't find it in any of the opinion networks. For true evangelical faith does not lie dormant, but spreads itself out in all kinds of righteousness and fruits of love. It clothes the naked, it feeds the hungry, it comforts the sorrowful, it shelters the destitute, it does good to those who do it harm, it prays for those who persecute it, it seeks those who are lost, it binds up what is wounded, it heals the sick, it becomes all things to all people, a direct quote from Menno Simons in 1539. Now, no, I didn't have it memorized. <laughs> he got the Larry Rohr paraphrase, basically. But he got it, and hopefully he'll be able to discern between the genuine and, and the pretender. But aren't we starting to get a picture here of the way it should be when the children of God are graced with the presence of God, often through angels unawares? Are, are we beginning to understand just how our spirits are touched with the spirit of Christ when we let ourselves get close to the poor or the outcast, the lonely or the forgotten, the social misfit? See, the sheep get it. They get it when they're told that they must love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And as a matter of fact, they must love their neighbor as themselves because that's what it means to love God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength. Love, by the way, that is not limited simply to pious posturing or religious observance, but a love that, in fact, also is not dependent on having one's own feathers stroked for a job well done, but rather a love that forgives as we have been forgiven. Or a love that does for others what we expect others to do for us. A love that cares for the hungry and the thirsty, and that by the grace of God liberates us from ourselves and our self-righteousness. That's the way it is to live like a sheep and understand and to know the presence of Jesus in our midst. Then there are the goats. If this were a song, we would probably have to shift to a minor key. You think so? But it wouldn't be totally discordant. The chord would not be totally discordant. And, and perhaps that's what makes this sketch as sinister as it is. Because we are not given an image of the goats as evil in and of themselves. We often don't hear that in this text. But we don't see the goats as being evil. You know, we think in terms of the sheep and the goats, okay, good, bad, good, evil. Well, that's not necessarily how this has been playing out. You see, the goats are given the same opportunities as the sheep. The goats are just as freely beneficiaries of the grace of God. The goats have just as much access to the poor and the prisoner. The goats are confronted with life in its ordinary, just as are the sheep. And in fact, the goats are just as clueless to the presence of Jesus as are the sheep but not necessarily for the same reasons. Perhaps what's really going on here is that the goats are placed in the category of the goats simply because they were not around. They were not present 
to Jesus. Not a question of Jesus being present to them. They were not present to Jesus. And we ask, how is that possible? Where were they looking for God? Just in high places? Could they not get past the stereotypes that they had of the least of these? Maybe they were too busy. Maybe they were afraid to go into strange neighborhoods. Maybe they were turned off by a perceived difference in, in values among those in need. Maybe they didn't think of the list of needy as those who could advance their careers or their social standing or their political ties. Or maybe their paths didn't cross with those in need simply because it didn't fit their lifestyle. You know? Whatever the reason may have been, whatever the purpose may have been, the, go the, the goats are teaching us a critical lesson about the sins of omission. As our Mennonite statesman Myron Augsburger has said, all one needs to do to miss out on God's grace is to ignore him. And then he goes on to quote another well-known saying, all that needs to happen for evil to triumph is for what? Good people to do nothing. Yeah. Good people to do nothing. And it's not like this is the only place where we see Jesus bringing this lesson to the people. As a matter of fact, already in chapter 25, before we even get to the story of the sheep and goats, we find him giving this same lesson. The, the chapter itself begins with the foolish virgins who have neglected to bring oil while waiting for the bridegroom. It moves on to the second parable where the unfaithful servant is rejected for hiding his one talent. And now the goats are singled out for failing to minister to the needy who are in their midst. You see, what is, what is Jesus saying in his last message before he goes to the cross? I think he's telling us that the gospel always has social implications. I think he's telling us this is something that he has wanted to impress upon his listeners to the very end of his ministry. And if he's going for shock value here, then he is successful. He is successful in the very choice that he has laid before us. Learn to live as sheep or accept the goat's unhappy destiny. That's not much of a choice, is it? But it pushes us to ask the question, even today in this age, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or naked and ministered to you through the least of these? Lord, when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and did not take care of you? See, we live in the ordinary just as much as any first-time listener in the company of Jesus. And yeah, we can be just as clueless, can't we? Because it takes a real effort to bridge that gap to bridge the distance between the daily routine, the daily agenda that we have in our lives, and those whom Christ places in our path. I mean, it can be painful to let go of those stereotypes that we have, isn't it? It can, it can be overwhelming at times to overcome our fears and to make space for those who can give us nothing in return. We may need to train ourselves to listen, to really listen people that we have been conditioned to take for granted. A few years ago, a friend took me with him to Colombia, South America. 
we spent most of our time along the north coast of, of uh, Colombia to visit those communities that had suffered, basically dev were devastated by the param paramilitary activity going on along the north coast in sending drugs to the U.S. And there were a lot of villages that were just annihilated by the paramilitary precisely because of that, because the paramilitary wanted routes to go to the seacoast. Well, my friend had served in Colombia in, with MCC at an earlier time, and he wanted to go back. He basically wanted to go back and, and retrace the steps of his ministry so that he could get some updates about how the communities were faring at this point and, and to encourage these communities because these were communities that were often forgotten by the leadership of Colombia. They were, they were Afro-indigenous communities, Afro-Colombian communities. That's who they were. And they're often forgotten, often pushed aside because of that. Okay? So he wanted to go back and he wanted to help encourage those same communities. We traveled about 500 miles on a motorbike. Yeah, one motorbike, two guys. <laughs> he drove, I rode on the back. The mother of our host family said that I must have an iron behind. <laughs> Except it was translated a little differently to me. <laughs> so here we are, we're traveling. We're traveling 500 miles, village to village, doing some preaching, yes, but mostly listening, mostly listening to the people as they were telling their stories, stories which needed to be heard. I'm ashamed to say that I only knew a few words of Spanish, so, so the stories were all basically told through interpreters, and I know you missed something through the interpretation, and I'm still sorry about that. And yet it didn't seem to matter to them because... They welcomed me as a, as a friend and brother, even though we couldn't communicate a whole lot because of a language barrier that was there. But as they welcomed me, and as I found newly found friends in, in that whole pro, pro, process, I was hearing their stories. I was hearing harrowing accounts of bullying, of intimidation, of threats, of threats made good, of killings, of kidnappings. I was hearing the kinds of things that should never have to happen to any human being on this earth that was happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hearing these stories and yet seeing a people who were resilient. And that's what amazed me so much is that regardless of what they had experienced, they still managed to somehow maintain a sense of the ordinary in their support and their ministry to each other. They were able to still communicate that foundation of hope and their commitment to peace. In one worship service that we attended, the pastor was telling this great story. He was telling the story of Dirk Willems. Does that name ring a bell? Yeah, Dirk Willems, the 16th century Dutch Anabaptist who was fleeing for his life and his pursuer went across this icy lake and fell through the ice. And so Dirk Willems came back and he rescued his pursuer, who then took him back to the authorities where he was burned at the stake. Well, as the pastor was telling this story to his people, to his congregation, you would just see that the people themselves were sitting on the edge of their seats. They were, they were just, they, they had nothing else in mind. They, they heard this story that the pastor was telling them. 
And, and they were doing it because they knew the story. No, many of them had never heard this story before, mind you. Yeah, they lived it. They knew the story because they had lived it. It was their story in a way that it could never have been my story. They were kin to Dirk Phillips much more so than I was or any of us could possibly be. I listened as they told their stories. I listened as I heard within, between their stories, a faith that was intact and the knowledge that Jesus was there. Jesus was there. I'll tell you the story of these brothers and sisters. They had such a profound effect upon me that after having that experience, I came back to my own familiar surroundings with one resolve, and that resolve was to pay attention to respect and to listen to the stories, listen to the wants and the needs and the aspirations and the hopes among those that I had not previously noticed. And I should say, God has provided with far more than I deserve to hear. I wish I could say that I've always been attentive, but that's not true. What I can say, though, is that those we define as the least of these, whoever they may be, as exasperating as they may be, and you know what I mean by that, that those same persons are nothing less than channels of grace, indeed, as the source of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that, my friends, is what makes for an adventurous journey. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, Spirit. Amen.